Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of intriguing and knowledgeable people. The vast majority of Ideas Roadshow guests are senior researchers. Many, in fact, are emeritus professors. Being an emeritus professor means different things at different institutions, but one thing it clearly doesn't mean is that one is at an early stage in one's research career. That's all very understandable, of course. Ideas Roadshow is all about engaging with specialists who have a deep and comprehensive knowledge of their individual areas of expertise, and such understanding is often naturally associated with increased age. But it can't be denied that most of the time, revolutionary leaps in our understanding actually come from the work of cutting-edge young researchers, who are also naturally best positioned to see where any field is presently heading. Indeed, much of my conversations with senior established researchers invariably involves examining how precisely they came upon their seminal insights that helped change their field, insights which typically occurred many decades ago. Wouldn't it be marvelous, I've often thought to myself, if I could have the chance to speak with young researchers who are dynamically driving their field forward right now? The problem, of course, is how can you know that the work that someone is doing today will be universally recognized as transformative 20 or 30 years from now? Well, clearly you can never be certain, but that's not to say that there aren't some signs to look out for. Take classical scholar Esther Salgarella, for example a dynamic young postdoctoral researcher at the University of Cambridge, whose recent book based on her pioneering PhD thesis, Aegean Linear Scripts, Rethinking the Relationship Between Linear A and Linear B, rigorously examines the relationship between the two ancient scripts before concluding that the transition from Linear A to Linear B was considerably more continuous than many currently believe, with a spectrum of fascinating associated socio-historical implications. Meanwhile, as she continues to pursue these investigations. Esther is also hard at work harnessing the powers of modern communications technology to significantly further the cause of Linear A scholarship worldwide by collaborating with a French computer scientist to develop the world's first freely accessible searchable database of Linear A. So no, I can't promise you that Esther Salgarella will be one of the world's most respected authorities of ancient scripts in 20 years, say. But I sure wouldn't bet against it. As promised, I would like to know a little bit more about your, your personal background and in particular, your interest in the ancient world. So maybe you can just give me a sense of how that all began for you. Basically, I started studying Greek and Latin in high school when I was 14 years old. And that basically is the beginning of my passion for ancient languages. Although I've got to say that I always had an interest in a writing system and scripts in general. Like, for instance, I remember that uh, when I was a kid, like six to eight years old, I don't particularly remember the specific age, I got basically passionate about Egyptian hieroglyphs just after visiting um, an exhibition in Venice. So I'm originally from Venice. And I started to basically cover my whole house, I mean, my parents' house with post-its, with a kind of transcript of what I thought would be transcriptions of Italian names into hieroglyphs. Of course, I was like a six to eight years old kid, didn't know anything, but still I had this kind of uh, drive towards like whatever, whatever is visual graphic system. 
Cool. So, yeah, then, of course, for me, the first time to be able to really, like, have access to um, the study of ancient scripts was in high school. Because in Italy, we have this uh, classical uh, high school where you do study... Liceo classical. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. You study a lot of uh, Greek and Latin, especially the first two years of high school. is very intensive. And then, basically, I carried forward with my passions. At university, I studied, uh, yeah, in Italian, it's called Lettera Antiche, so it's uh, classical languages. And when I was at university, I realized that actually I could uh, go back in time even further and try to uh, look at the earliest evidence of Greek ever attested in writing, which is Mycenaean Greek written with the Linear B script. So I managed to carve out my curriculum in a way and managed to have a thesis, both a BA, MA and the MA in Linear B. Oh, really? You did it even then? Yeah, it was challenging because it was not a formal course, basically. I had to do some kind of weird uh, moves. I had to ask like, lecturers in, a, um, in classical subjects to take me working on Linear B with the aid of... Uh, a professor that was working in another university. So it's like, uh, formally, I was still in my own university, but informally, I was getting advice from somebody else that I contacted myself because I wanted to learn Linear B, basically. Wow. And where, where was this other person? What university were they? So I studied in, um, in Padova. Right. And uh, at the time, this person, uh, this scholar, was uh, an associate professor or researcher many years ago. And he was from, um, and he's still from uh, uh, Rome, where he is now professor. <laughs> uh, and then, of course, I realized that the best place for me to uh, basically improve my knowledge on uh, Aegean writing systems would have been Cambridge, and for obvious, obvious reasons, because, you know, the decipherment of Linear B happened in the UK with uh, Michael Ventris, uh, aided by um, Professor Chadwick, and Professor Chadwick was uh, first at Oxford and then in Cambridge. And so I applied for basically a PhD here, and here I am. After a PhD, I basically got my postdoc, luckily enough, and I'm, I'm basically finishing my fourth year of postdoc here in Cambridge. So yeah, basically I had to dig, the, in a way, <laughs> metaphorically, but also like uh, realistically, I have to dig my own path in order to study what I was passionate and I am passionate about. Right. I don't want to belabor the point because there are lots of aspects of, of your work I'd like to get to, but um, just to provide perhaps an even more fuller context. So you're, you were in some Galilean uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right, uh, yeah. program, right? So what, 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 before I get to my question, so what, mm -hmm. what is that about? What, uh, so, what because I, I know that Galileo wasn't Padova, but I didn't, I don't know anything about anything <laughs> no else. Worries. So, is a, is an, so the school is named after Galileo Galilei, but it doesn't have anything formal to do with the Galileo in itself, in himself. So it's basically um, it's a parallel institution to the University of Padova, where students are admitted after a selection process, which is uh, basically students have got to go through both a written test and an oral examination. And there are 10 students chosen for each uh, broad like subject area. Uh, back in my days, there was humanities and sciences. And I think currently they also opened up a new area, which is uh, um, social sciences and economics, but I'm not super sure. Uh, I was that a good 10 years ago, so <laughs> things have changed. Um, so basically, yeah, you've got to get into this school by competition, and then uh, you've got basically your scholarship because you can be accommodated to the, uh, in, the, um, in the college of the school. You live together with all the other Galileans, in a way. Oh, and, really? uh, oh yeah, you're all together. 
And then uh, we also have additional courses to take in the school parallel to the ones that we take in um, the university. And we need to pass both exams. And at the end of the five years, we've got to write basically two theses. So it's basically having double university in a way. Yeah, but it's very, it was very, it has been very enriching because the courses that I did in the Galilean school were pretty interdisciplinary in a way. Uh, so they complemented what I did uh, in Padova, the normal university, but also they gave you an open-minded uh, approach to all the disciplines. Right. And, and of course, not, not only through, the, uh, through your studies, but also through the social interaction that you're, you're with all these other people who are doing, uh, pursuing different interests and different fields and, and, and so yeah. forth. So it must have been quite a stimulating Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think it was just uh, wanted to make a comment that in a way is not too far from the Cambridge system, because here in Cambridge, you actually, I mean, you live in colleges, usually students right. live in colleges, and they meet people working in different fields, and they are all together. So I think that coming from the Galilean school, for me, was not too much of a uh, I don't know, a shock or a surprise to be here in Cambridge. It depends on how you take it, you know, because I had already some way of exposure to a system that was not too far off in a way and very enriching culturally. Yeah. So I, I want to pick up on the interdisciplinarity aspect in a moment. Um, mm -hmm. But before I do, returning to your interest in Linear B, which started quite early, uh, you, you gave a very quick summary. I realized that I could go back to the uh, as far back as one could go, or the, the beginnings, as far as we know, of the Greek language. And, and, and so you became interested in Linear B, and you did your thesis, uh, your undergraduate thesis, and then your master's thesis, and now you mm -hmm. moved to Cambridge, and here you are, and, and all the rest of that. So how did that actually happen? How did the, the did, did you read this biography of Michael Ventris? Did you, did you, you talk about, uh, as a small child, being exposed to um, a, a, an exhibition on hieroglyphics when you were in Venice and, and all of a sudden the world, that world opened up to you. How did you become particularly stimulated and fascinated by Linear B? So I would say, again, it started in high school when uh, my Greek teacher started to talk us, to tell us about the Minoans and the Mycenaeans. And we had to do a quiz, actually, for the school. Or, and it was an online quiz on Schliemann, Heinrich Schliemann. Right. So I think that actually started to like give me the, the hint that uh, that was what I wanted to do. I wanted to study Bronze Age, basically Bronze Age Greek and Bronze Age archaeology, sorry. Uh, so yeah, basically moving from classical languages uh, backwards to um, Greek archaeology just by discovering it in high school, in a way, by be being exposed to what happened uh, in the past by the teachers, in a way. And then, of course, then I picked it up. So I started reading here and there things about the, class uh, sorry, the, the Bronze Age period, the Schliemann's discoveries, uh, how Troy got to be discovered and all these things and how much linear B or how much of the Bronze Age Greek we can read in Homer, for instance. So it was a bit of a self-process process of self-study in a way of whatever I could uh, get my hands on to, you know, just before university. Then as soon as I got to, at university, of course, I, I, I looked for people or scholars that uh, were uh, working on the subject and also I still remember that on the first year of my BA I, in, on this over the summer I asked my father to take me to, to Mycenae 
because I wanted to go. So just the two of us, plus actually, plus a friend, a dear friend of mine, we went there by caravan with a very old caravan. <laughs> uh, yeah, and so we took a ferry and we went basically from Italy um, to the Peloponnese and then we did a bit of a tour to reach Mycenae. And, and I still remember being there on the caravan and seeing the sun setting over Mycenae and telling myself, oh yeah, it was worth it. And I'll definitely study this for life. Yeah, I think like collecting little pieces of information by myself in order to get the like a broader view of what I wanted to study in a way and looking for the people uh, that were able to provide me with that um, educational support. Yeah. And you mentioned going with your father. So as you're progressing in your studies, what did your family think of uh, what you were doing? Was this all part of the tradition? Is everybody a classical scholar in your family? Or were you were you very, very different from everybody else? Do you have siblings who were doing similar things or different things? Or, or what would describe that environment? Mm-hmm. Well, first, I've got to say my family has always been super supportive of my studies. And I, am, I was the first one in, in forever to go to university. So my family comes from a uh, not let's say it was not a super well-off uh, background. Um, they, we still live in the countryside. I mean, they still live in the countryside, and I do go visit. So my father started going to university and started um, studying uh, law. But then, because of financial reasons, uh, and the family couldn't support him, basically he had to look for a job. So he had to leave basically university. I mean, very sadly and regrettably. Um, well, my mom was a, a nursery school teacher. And of course, she wanted to become like a high school teacher. She wanted to go to, uh, to, to university. And always she had the dream of studying philosophy. I don't know why. But of course, I mean, the family could not support the, uh, basically the expense of a university. So when, of course, when I, when, when I, when I expressed the um, willingness to go to university, and of course the times had changed, and meanwhile, they were super supportive for any subject I ever wanted to embark on studying. And luckily enough, the Galilean school also relieved my family of uh, the burden in a way to provide for me because it was, I, I was on a scholarship for five years. Right. So it was quite good for me. I, I was able basically to provide for my own, for myself and for my studies. So yeah, uh, my family, in a way, I mean, they never had any objections to me studying classics or something that may potentially not give you a job, I mean, a secure job in, in the future. And they were very happy. They just told me, yeah, follow your passions and something will get out of it. We just want you to be happy. Uh, and that's the thing. Um, I, see, I do have a sister, Irene. She's younger, uh, three years younger. And uh, actually, she did the Liceo Classico as well. But then she decided to study biology. And now she is doing uh, uh, neuroscience in London. <laughs> Start, just started a PhD. So, yeah, she managed to yeah, follow the university path in a way in the family uh, and do whatever she wanted. So that's a bit of the outline of what the family is like. Are we super supportive and super happy for what we are doing? Right. That's wonderful. I was just going to ask, uh, just parenthetically, uh, is she at UCL or is she at King's? Yeah. Or one of yeah, them? She's at, at UCL. UCL. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Just well, that's nice. easier. <laughs> that's nice for you that you have family uh, in the country, in the island, as it were. Exactly. Anyway. Exactly. <laughs> Feels less lonely. <laughs> a couple questions about, uh, I am going to move to more recent things soon, don't worry. No. But um, you, you talked about doing your, your undergraduate thesis and then your master's thesis on Linear B. So what specifically were you doing? What uh, I'm not entirely certain what an undergraduate 
thesis in that area would even look like. So what, what sorts mm -hmm. of things were you doing? Was it more of a, a summation of the current state of scholarship or an understanding of history or, or, or what, what sorts of things were you, were you doing? So in my case, my, uh, my undergrad dissertation was uh, um, on philology, so Mycenaean philology. So I was given uh, the topic of looking for all the attestation of the place name Festos in the Lina B tablets and try to come up with uh, like, yeah, the state of the art and what can we say about the administration, the economy and the history of uh, Bronze Age Festos based on the textual data. Mm. Of course, it was only a case study because my, um, I mean, my advisor, he was, he was doing a bigger project on Festos and now he has got actually a super big project and he's uh, basically the director of the excavations at Festos. It is uh, an Italian uh, basically um, excavation site. Uh, so yeah, my, 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 my job was basically to look at this data set of evidence, of the written evidence on Linear B, that uh, where the place name Festos Paito is still tested and try to reconstruct basically the historical context or a bit of the historical context based on that. Of course, it was a BA uh, thesis, so you cannot aim at getting uh, big, uh, big theories out of it, but still, uh, I think it was quite challenging, but also very gratifying in a way because I could I could I could work on Lina B from very early on in a way so I was very happy right and, and did you uh, incidentally did you did you spend time in Crete as well so not before coming to Cambridge actually because when I was doing my studies in Italy Padova didn't have any kind of uh, like excavations going on in on Crete because uh, the my advisor thesis advisor was from Rome so for institutional reasons I couldn't go <laughs> because I was from Padova, basically. Uh, and then when I moved to the UK, I was able actually to go to Crete for a number of number of time for graduate courses at Knossos, for instance. I went to the postgraduate course uh, at the BSA and it was quite nice. Then I did some excavation in uh, south of Sparta, um, where the so-called new Mycenaean palace was uh, discovered in 2008-2009. And then I did uh, trips by myself just to visit uh, the museums in Kenya, in Heraklion, and Santorini and things uh, uh, like that, just going around. Okay. And uh, one more thing, your master's thesis, what, what did you do for that? So it was still, uh, it was again a philological work. And this time the data set was uh, thematic. And I looked at the evidence of chariotry, basically, uh, at Knossos, on the Lina B tablets from Knossos. So... All the, all the tablets that could mention, for instance, chariots, um, corslets, horses, to try and understand why this happened. Was it really like a, a warfare situation? Or how many people potentially could have been uh, allocated this amount of stuff <laughs> in general? So it was a bit of a combination of a philological work plus, again, historical reconstruction with a slightly different data set, but with the same philological approach. Right. Well, that gives me some better sense as to aspects of your PhD. Obviously, I'm, I'm not the slightest bit of a specialist in this area, but for somebody coming at this from afar, it, my, my first reaction is to say, wow, there's just an awful lot that one has to know. Um, and there's a lot about, obviously, the, the structure of linear B, linear A, and so forth. But there's a lot uh, There's a lot about linguistics. There's yeah. a lot of detailed information about linguistics, which is a, a very, very different field built on the theoretical and the practical aspect of it. 
there's of course a lot of the historical context. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of archaeology. There's a lot of understanding uh, the culture, and and there's even a considerable amount, as you write in your book, and as we hope to get to, some relatively recent, certainly extremely recent, relatively speaking, history in terms of the last hundred or, or hundred and fifty years of what has happened what discoveries have been made, what's happened in the archaeological record, but also how that has affected our hearts and minds and approaches to try to uh, appreciate what's gone on in the past. So there's a tremendous amount of knowledge that one has to have at some level, presumably to even begin doing this sort of research in earnest. So it's not terribly surprising that you were fortunate enough or or hardworking enough, or I'm I'm not sure exactly how best to describe it, to have at least a a good chunk of that uh, essential knowledge before you even began your PhD. Yeah, I'm very grateful for, I think it's a combination of luck, passion, and maybe, I don't know, astral coincidences. So I'm very happy to see that when it was in Padova, okay, there was not a course specifically devised for Mycenaean epigraphy or Mycenaean linguistics, but still there was somebody there who could help me out. So I'm very, very happy for that. Um, Yes, but then, yeah, I completely agree with you that uh, one has got to start early. Once you have identified your own like passions and what you want to do, it's always it's better to start early because uh, yeah, it requires a lot of knowledge in different uh, disciplines in a way. As you said, archaeology, linguistics, uh, really a bit of everything. You need to know Greek, you need to know um, historical reconstruction, you need to know archaeology. It's just a lot of stuff, yes. <laughs> right. And, and I mean, even when you say you need to know Greek, again, I, I, uh, I don't, sadly. But my, my sense is, for people who don't know, that's not just one thing. It's not like saying you need to know Spanish. I mean, the, the Greek language has evolved yeah. so significantly, <laughs> and there are different aspects of Greek. There's Attic Greek, there's Koine Greek. And of course, if you go further back, which you do, you have to not just be familiar with a particular type of Greek in a particular time in a particular place, but you have to know many different types of yeah. classical Greek. And so there's a... It's... It's a complex situation. I know this because my daughter's a class assistant. Ah, okay. So, it was actually wondering, like, wow, you basically it's the jargon is perfect. <laughs> well, she talks to me sometimes. So, nice, uh, nice. So that's advantageous. Anyway, let's start with some basics. So if you can just give us a definition of what you mean by Bronze Age civilization, and then from there we'll, we'll move to uh, these various scripts and we'll move to the, the languages and speculations and so forth. Okay, so first, I think the proviso needs to be added that the Bronze Age means slightly different things based on context. I mean, uh, geographical context. So the Bronze Age is a, real, uh, is a term that uh, relates to relative chronology in a way. So, for instance, Bronze Age on Crete might not necessarily be the same time span of Bronze Age in Turkey, for instance, or different areas. Roughly speaking, Bronze Age is always falls within uh, the uh, second millennium BC anyway. On Crete, uh, roughly until uh, 1100 before Christ, that's the span, uh, roughly speaking, of the Bronze Age on Crete and mainland Greece, which is considered as uh, a system, basically, is the Aegean area. So in terms of civilizations, first of all, we have got the so-called Minoans, who were the inhabitants of Crete uh, and used the Aline A writing system. And then we've got the so-called Mycenaeans that were um, basically inhabitants of Mycenaean Greece and spoke uh, the Greek language, while the Minoans still, uh, uh, the language of the Minoans is still unknown. 
However, these are modern constructions. I mean, the names Mycenaeans and Minoans are modern um, constructions, basically. We don't have any attestations of these names going back to the, uh, the historical period. So they didn't call them either Minoans or Mycenaeans. We still don't particularly know how they call themselves. Uh, on this, I open a little parenthesis because we may know the name of Crete in Cretan, I mean, in Minoan, which could have sounded something like Keftiu, Kaftor, Kaptor, because it's attested in Egyptian and in Hebrew. And it seems to mean Crete, but we don't know how they call themselves. So this is to say that basically we've got, during the Bronze Age, two civilizations that, that are basically the construct of the modern era, and but on top of these two civilizations, there must have been other population groups inhabiting the islands of Crete, for instance, mainland Greece, because we do have a number also of different writing systems on top of Linear A and Linear B. So, of course, it's a bit biased to make a one-to-one -one correlation between um, writing system and civilization, which is something that actually has been applied in the past and I've also argued against in my book. But still, I am trying to give a general idea of what the traditional scholarship uh, um, basically uh, thinks, in a way, and how people approach the, the, past, the Bronze Age, the Aegean Bronze Age. So, these are, so basically, I was saying, Minoans, Linear A, Crete, Mycenaeans, Linear B, uh, Mainland Greece. That's basically what is found in mainstream um, literature. However, I said there, are that, that there is evidence of different writing systems, like Cretan hieroglyphic. But was Cretan hieroglyphic used by the so-called Minoans? Then, well, then depends on what we mean by Minoans again. And then there are other episodes of writing that seems to be like uh, one-off attestations, like the Festos disc, the Archalochoriax, the Arcanes script. These are all uh, like evidence of writing found on Crete, but they don't fall neatly within one of the already known systems, namely Cretan hieroglyphic, Lina A, Lina B, or Cypromainon and Cyprosyllabic. So it looks a bit like there was a lot going on in terms of uh, written experimentation on, with writing. And there is not necessarily yeah, a correlation between a given civilization and a writing system. Yeah. So maybe there were just more, the, I mean, different communities, different communities of practice that were basically uh, using writing for different purposes. They might have spoken similar languages or maybe not, but still uh, calling them all minons would be too much of an umbrella, using too much of an umbrella term. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I definitely want to explore in detail some suppositions and some specifics of your approach. Mm -hmm. But before I do, I want to make sure we set the context appropriately. Okay. So in dates wise, I think I may give a little overview. So basically, Cretan hieroglyphic, we've got these three main scripts, Cretan hieroglyphic, Lina A and Lina B. So Cretan hieroglyphic is the older. It's called a hieroglyphic, and it was named and uh, dubbed hieroglyphic by Sir Arthur Evans because it resembled, in his view, uh, Egyptian hieroglyphs, and to some extent it does. So the first attestation of Cretan hieroglyphic uh, dates back to around roughly uh, 1900 uh, BCE. And the latest attestations of Cretan hieroglyphic are, are 1600s, so 1-9 to 1600. Linear A uh, originated slightly later, around 1800s, and it was in use until, uh, in use until uh, um, 1450, roughly. Then there is a gap. From 1450 until 14th century or 1370, we don't have any uh, evidence of writing, or at least we haven't found any yet. 
And from 1400 onwards, we've got Lina B. And Lina B basically is used both on Crete and mainland Greece, with the mainland Greece actually having the latest statisticians of Lina B dating back to the 12th or 1190. So that's basically the idea. So Linea A was a bit in, in, um, in contemporary use with Crypto Hieroglyphic for some 200 years. And then basically there is a gap in use uh, in, in the tradition of writing between Linea A and Linea B. And that's the tricky point. <laughs> Linea B seems to have originated out of the blue because there is no kind of clear continuation from the archaeological record. But that may well be because of our basically partial evidence. Maybe in the future something will be found inscribed, an object will be found with some Lina B inscriptions dating back to before the current early statistician of Lina B. Right. And I guess if I'm listening to this and I know nothing about this, I can see myself asking, well, how do you even, how do you know that? How do you know that with such assurance that this, that these, these dates seem very, very precise? How can you be certain of that? Maybe I've heard of carbon dating but presumably there are other techniques. So describe a little bit to me how we can be so certain or at least reasonably certain of those particular dates. Well, for in terms of scripts, it's because of the um, archaeological record where they were found stratigraphically. So Crete is a seismic island and there have been many episodes of um, destructions of the uh, Minoan palaces basically over time. So the stratification and the stratigraphical layers are quite visible in, a, in the archaeological record. So the main way of basically giving a date to the uh, written uh, documents is to see where they are located, where, where they sit stratigraphically when you do the dig, basically when you do the excavations. And then thanks to connections that we have got with the securely uh, dated artifacts, like pottery usually. Pottery is used to give you um, a clue as to the date because pottery shapes and pottery decoration are stylistic in a way. It's like our fashions in a way. We know that, we, do, for instance, we don't dress anymore like we dressed in the 90s. So for pottery, in a way, it's pretty similar. So pottery used as a chronological indicator. So when you find a dia diagnostic piece of pottery shared in a given stratigraphical layer and you find a tablet deposit associated or that can be associated with that stratigraphical layer, then you can securely, I mean, reasonably securely give a date to the archaeological depo deposit. And given that most of the written evidence comes from palatial, palatial centers, then actually we can stand a good chance of uh, getting reasonably reliable dates. But again, this is mostly in terms of relative chronology. When we talk of absolute dates, like centuries, that's always a bit tricky. It's always better and best to give the audience at least an idea of what about in time, basically, we are. What, what are we talking about? I could, I could just say second millennium BC, and then I could talk about the new palatial period, the proto-palatial, pre-palatial, these things. And I am afraid that uh, or even most students don't maybe get uh, their own heads around uh, the relative chronology nomenclature. Right. Parenthetically, there mm -hmm. are still some people who dress uh, from the 90s, but that's a whole other <laughs> Yes, <laughs> but and there are actually that there seem to be there seems to be some continuation of Lina A into the period of Lina B, so to say. We'll, we'll get to that, and, and in fact, there are a couple of specific questions I have. But but first, there's a categorization method that you use that's presumably standard, mm -hmm. which is you distinguish 
writings that are non-administrative and writings that are administrative. Mm -hmm. uh, so so uh, perhaps you can describe what you mean by that. Mm -hmm. So this is, I think, specifically IGN in a way, and uh, it's born about our way of uh, looking at uh, uh, linea B primarily and also linea A. So by administrative document, uh, we mean uh, clay tablets mostly or other clay documents that were used for the bookkeeping of palatial administrations in both Mycenaean Greek and Minoan uh, Crete. So these documents come mostly from the palatial centers, from uh, stratigraphically defined deposits, most of them, and were used again as a, a records of economic transactions. So they look like, uh, in a way, shopping lists. So we have got uh, a number of names that could be personal names or place names, and then you've got uh, a logogram, which is a picture sign representing an object, a commodity, or, for instance, an animal like cattle. And then you've got uh, numbers that uh, basically refer to the, the quantity of the commodity listed. At the end of some of these documents, of course, you can also have a total, like the, the total of the, the item recording or a possible deficit. So this is basically the, the shape of the documents that we are looking at and working with. And these are called administrative documents because of the setting in which they were found. However, especially in linear A, a number of um, objects that were found in non-administrative uh, context also bear inscriptions. And these are mostly uh, cultic, I mean, these inscriptions and these objects are mostly cultic uh, uh, in character and religious. A good number of them come from sanctuaries, uh, from uh, sacred caves uh, uh, on Crete, and they are not made, they are not clay tablets, but they are made out of stone, like stone vessels or uh, metal ob objects or other pottery shapes also in, can um, Pottery can bear writing, but not for administrative purposes necessarily. So there is a bit of a yeah, writing. What is left, basically, of linear A writing comes from these two different contexts. And for this reason, the scholarship usually address them with that way, the nomenclature of basically administrative and non-administrative document. Although a document, an object is not necessarily a document, how, how we basically we call it today. Right. For linear B, the context is slightly more restricted. Uh, we don't have uh, linear B non-administrative documents, or very, very few that can be counted on, uh, basically, in the, the fingers of your ha hand. Linear B has mostly got uh, administrative documents, specifically in the shape of tablets that become bigger if compared to linear uh, linear A, they are bigger, they are fuller, uh, they are denser with information in a way, but also more systematized. I mean, the grammatological practice is improved, so they look uh, they look nicer and tidier in a way. There were a couple of things that really stood out for me when I just looked at uh, at the summary. One was there was a non-administrative linear A document which was found in mainland Greece. Uh, there was a metal vessel that was found in a in a grave. And that's interesting because I, at least it was interesting for me because I wasn't even aware that there were any uh, linear A documents that were in mainland Greece. So there's that, that certainly stood out to me. And again, I, I, I have a few questions about the implications of that towards mm -hmm. the end that I'd like to get to. Another thing, you give a series of maps at the very beginning about where evidence is found, both administrative and non-administrative, both for linear A and linear B. And there was a, um, a linear A document that was found way up um, in Samothrace uh, that was also 
interesting to me. So a, a good ways away from Crete, and that also seems to have some potentially interesting implications as well. The idea that it, that linear A documents, both administrative and, and non-administrative, were found, I don't know to, to what degree or what order, but there is certainly evidence of, of them being found outside of, of Crete. Yeah. So... Yeah, so Linea A was definitely uh, had definitely a more extensive use if compared to Linea B. Linea B is only found basically at Knossos, at Kanyao on Crete, and then in the mainland, while Linea A is found all over Crete, basically in a good number of Aegean islands, potentially on Turkey, and as you as you mentioned, the two sites uh, in mainland Greece. One is Mycenae with the um, the metal vessel that you mentioned that bears one sign, but actually. It's very unclear whether that's linear A or linear B because it's a shared sign. So this sign occurs in both linear A and linear B, but because of the date of the of the document, it's like uh, it's impossible for it to be linear B hmm. because linear B was in a way created later on, or at right. least the earliest attestation of linear B are later. And then the other site that yielded the linear A evidence on the mainland, this is a non-administrative document, is made out of bone, it's very, a small fragment of bone with two signs only. And this is more clearly linear A because one sign is shared between linear A and linear B, is, is read as ma, the other one is not. Uh, no, actually they are both ama, actually, yeah, yeah. But the, the paleography of uh, the, the inscription seems to be pointing towards linear A more than linear B. And again, chronologically, linear B has got to be excluded. But these are the only two attestations for now of linear A in the mainland. But while when we move on to the Aegean islands, the situation changes. So it looks like that the Aegean, in a way, was more connected and interconnected and especially dependent on or with relations with Crete, with the, the, the main metropolitan area, in a way. And yeah, on the islands, we do find uh, both administrative and non-administrative documents on top of other cultural indicators of minor influence, in a way, in terms of architecture, in terms of iconography, in terms of um, pottery. So the material culture, uh, strictly speaking. And all of this, of course, just to emphasize an obvious point, but perhaps one that should be repeated is contingent upon our knowledge up until now. And, and so that's one of the problems dealing with this line of work is that it, it could be that there are transformative finds that happen tomorrow that, that will change uh, potentially radically our understanding of the way that things were. So we're, we're doing our best to piece together the historical record from what we yeah. know now. Definitely, yeah. <laughs> Always changing. is constant change. Yeah. So... Uh, we're almost ready to move into your approach, but before we do, I thought you could spend a little bit of time talking about the influence of Arthur Evans and what he did and his legacy in terms of the academic world, not only in terms of his finds, but in terms of his orientation, his culture, his beliefs, and how that played out afterwards. Okay, well, Arthur Evans was definitely a very influential uh, uh, figure in the in the scholarship, not only for having discovered the palace of Knossos, but also for having created, in a way, the myth of the uh, the Minoans. He was the one calling them Minoans. For instance, most that we see at Knossos nowadays is still his own reconstruction of what he thought would be the palace of Knossos. 
So he had very, very strong views on a number of different topics, actually broad, broadly covering all of the, uh, basically the archaeological reconstruction and also the linguistic reconstruction. And most of his ideas uh, not only were very influential, but also had a bearing on uh, the future generations of scholars. So just for, to give you an example, uh, he always thought that uh, the Minoan language was, of course, indigenous to Crete, and, um, and he must have been, in a way, connected to Etruscan, in his own view. So for a long, and of course, he thought that both Linnea A and Linnea V noted that the same language, and they are both, in a way, potentially connected to Etruscan before Lina B was deciphered, of course. So very many scholars, including Ventris himself, basically had, um, had reservations. Nobody was able, basically, to put forward theories, feeling a bit like uh, worried about their own views in case they went against uh, uh, Evans's, uh, Evans's idea, uh, basically. So Ventris himself was... Uh, I mean, very careful when he expressed his, uh, his theories and his views that Linebi could have been Greek. So that uh, is an example of basically the, the amount of influence that Evans had uh, also for, for the decipherment uh, of Linebi itself. I mean, basically, we look at the Minoan civilization, we still look at the Minoan civilization through the lenses of Evans's glasses because, uh, again, we call them Minoans, but we don't know if they were one single, basically, societal group or they were made out of different communities and how they identified themselves. Uh, that's, that's still a bit unclear. It's difficult, of course, to, to, to try and envisage because we don't have that information from the written sources and the archaeological context alone can only give us information up to one point. But still, we are still a bit too dependent on Evans's views of this unified Minoan civilization as opposed to the Mycenaean one. And just a, a clarifying footnote. So my understanding is that Michael Ventris, I, I knew that he was, or at least I was under the impression that he was uh, originally thinking that this could be Etruscan, but I didn't quite understand that it was part of the legacy of Evans to point him in that direction and to what extent yeah. he actually believed that. Um, but at any rate, he did with Chadwick, as you say, but he did decipher this in, I think it was 52, right? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. He showed this. And then uh, my understanding is he died tragically very yeah. shortly thereafter. But ever since 52, there was this understanding that we had that Linear B was an ancient, effectively an ancient form of Greek, the precursor to archaic Greek, I guess. Is that, was, would that be a fair way to... Yeah, exactly. It? I think it's perfect, perfect uh, reconstruction of what happened, actually. Yeah, so the decipherment happened in 52, but then documents in Mycenaean Greek, which is the big volume <laughs> on the uh, collective work, uh, uh, joint work with, with uh, um, Chadwick and, and Ventris, uh, came uh, uh, out slightly later after, of course, the Ventris uh, tragical accident. So it was edited by um, John Chadwick himself. Yeah, let's say that at the beginning, yeah, uh, Ventris himself had the doubts and he was not super sure whether he should uh, contrast, uh, go against uh, Evans's views. But then he started to accumulate evidence on top of evidence that actually were point was pointing him towards uh, the, the Greek hypothesis. And then he made list of terms, Mycenaean Greek terms, that, that had the clear equivalence in, class, in, in Greek, basically. But if, I mean, one applies some kind of... Uh, uh, rules to transliterate, uh, so to say, Mycenaean Greek into alphabetic Greek. 
I can give you an example, for instance, in a, to, 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 get, to have a taste of what Mycenaean Greek sounds like if compared to alphabetic Greek. So the name of men, men is um, atoroquo, is spelled at atoroquo in linear B, and is read with, in alphabetic Greek as anthropos. So there are a number of spelling rules that need to be used in order to make these kind of uh, associations. So Ventus was able to produce a list of terms that actually add clear connections and like with systematic patterns and clear connection with classical Greek. I should say alphabetic more than classic, yeah, alphabetic Greek. And of course, Chadwick was able to prove the correctness of his own hypothesis. But this required, in a way, a lot of effort in order for them to go against, and a lot of evid- cumulative evidence to go against the, the assumption that uh, minor, because Lina B was still seen uh, as some kind of Cretan uh, kind of written, written writing system. So linear A and linear B were to be taken as two slightly different entities on linguistic grounds, and that, of course, if they were not the same, they were not Etruscan, and at least one of them, that is linear B, was clearly Greek. Yeah. One point going back to Evans that I found very intriguing about the way you actually begin the book is you describe the sociocultural factors that may have uh, inclined him to his hypotheses and his orientations. And I think this is particularly interesting for a variety of reasons. It's interesting because it's important to understand some of our biases and to examine very carefully what biases we might be imbibing unreflectively that we should perhaps transcend or at least move beyond. And it also puts us in a perspective where we might ask ourselves the same question, well, what biases might we be actually imposing on the situation today? And I hope to get to those questions a little bit later on. But in, uh, but specifically, you, you mentioned three. You talk about how he was influenced by looking at the world through an Egyptian-centric mm-hmm. orientation in his categorization of, uh, in fact, Cretan hieroglyphic uh, in and of itself, as well as late period, middle period, uh, early period. I think I said those wrong chronologically, but anyway. No worries. Uh, (laughs) That tripartite subdivisions, that's fine. (laughs) Right. And also this notion of evolutionary theory at the time being being so important and and the idea that you, you go through a rudimentary stage until you achieve some sort of organically perfected version and then perhaps you know maybe there's decay after that or whatever this 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 notion of uh, of evolution with mm-hmm. in an anthropological context yeah and then you also talk about the sociopolitics of an age of dawning nationalism yeah that's an important role <laughs> and which he also ascribed to you know this is the birth of Europe and that's why he had such almost patriotic views about Minoan civilization as he called it this idea that it must have it must have been the center of everything. It, uh, it was a, uh, a Cretan, uh, a philo-Cretan, I don't know how you would yeah. describe it, perspective. And that these were his own biases that were uh, presumably a combination of his own proclivities and cultural uh, effects of the day that were transferred into his theses and his work and were to a large extent imbibed by many people, in fact, generations hence. And when, when you, uh, so that's my understanding of, of, mm-hmm. of, the, of the points that you were making. So I'm going to come to a question, which sometimes <laughs> takes me a while to do, as you may have noticed, which is, 
Do, do other people look at things in that way? Do they place Evans now that a long time has gone by? It was roughly the turn of the century, the 20th century, right? When he was doing these excavations. So 120 years, do people say, oh, yes, this is somebody that was very much a product of his time. And yes, he did some good things, but he, but do they recognize these sociological uh, biases and factors that he had? Or is that relatively distinct when, when you start doing that? Are you mm-hmm. stepping on toes? Is there still, uh, especially since you're at Cambridge, do you still have all sorts of people who, who throw slings and arrows at you and say, you can't say anything negative about Arthur Evans? Or, or is it not like that? No, I think things have moved. I've uh, moved on in a way, and honestly, there is still uh, there are there is still a divide between, in a way, people who are still very like uh, supportive of Evans's view, in a way, and people who actually reject the Evans's view, and they are trying to uh, come up with a slightly more nuanced interpretation. So I would say that mostly recent scholarship has started to uh, question. Um, and all views, basically, on uh, all views that um, concern the uh, the Bronze Age and how it got constructed over time. And of course, this means especially Evans's view, uh, Schliemann's view, Evans's view, and that's most of it, basically. But I would say, yeah, it's a recent move uh, because uh, you know uh, this is a reasonably recent field of studies. I mean, it goes back to the uh, 1900s, so last century, basically, when with the, the, the Schliemann's and Evans's discovery. So it has been a bit difficult to try and move away from the ideas of the pioneers, the pioneers of this discipline. But now that some time has passed, actually, and uh, also the modern context uh, is um, starting to question a bit everything. And I can say that a good number of scholars are now revisiting and revising Evans's view and trying to point out what actually has, has got to be uh, conceived as uh, um, influenced by the context, the contemporary historical context, like the idea of nations and nationalisms. So the, the, the very fact of finding and discovering a new civilization on Crete gave Evans the power to say, look, these are our ancestors and these are the f- this is the first civilization on European soil, basically. So in a way, it was able to detach Europe, in a way, from the other nations. Uh, and then, of course, as you said, the, whole evolu- the evolutionary theory, because Darwinism was on the rise. Now people are also revisiting that and saying that uh, not necessarily, there is not necessarily a move from hieroglyphs to a more linear science. Because if we study the writing tradition diachronically, but also in, in its paleographical features, you can see that uh, actually to the two different uh, traditions, one hieroglyphic and the other linear, may not necessarily be as derivative as uh, we would assume them to be, because they were used in slightly different context uh, geographically uh, and also uh, functionally and also um, chronologically. So yeah, now uh, I would say that we reached a point where actually people are starting to uh, reject uh, most of Evan, a good number of Evans's views just by default in a way. So sometimes we are also trying to re- re-rescue <laughs> Evans saying, but, but look, I mean, actually something that Evan said was not too bad. Not all his views actually were biased or uh, misinformed. Sure. Some things are still uh, pretty, pretty nice, but... Uh, yeah, I would say it's, a, it's a still a hotly debated topic. How much do we owe to Evans and how much do we have to distance ourselves from Evans's views? Another, just a note that I would like to add in relation to Evans and his legacy is the fact that, for instance, if we want to study the stratigraphy of Knossos and the, the tablet deposits, for instance, also for linear B and linear A, 
we've got to do it uh, on Evans's um, work notes and, uh, and handbooks. So <laughs> again, basically what we, I mean, our way of studying the archaeological context of Knossost is through Evans's uh, writing. And many I mean, scholars are also studying Evans's uh, handbooks as if they were really like historical pieces of evidence to try and get to understand what he means with his own terminology or how he was cataloging all the linear B tablets in which sequence, in which deposits, on which days, to try and come up with what happened actually back in those days of the excavation because all this evidence uh, is not preserved. Yeah. I mean, there's always this difficulty within academe generally. It's field independent that one makes one's mark by overturning icons. And so there are these fashions and pendulums that go back and forth. For me, what's interesting about the idea of looking at things in terms of what might have been the biases that this individual brought and passed on is not so much to be attacking him personally. It's also worth saying that you might have all sorts of biases and you might still be right for coincidental reasons or whatever. Yeah. Just because you have biases or assumptions doesn't that, that are caused by all sorts of things doesn't mean that you're wrong objectively necessarily. You may be right or you may be wrong. It just means that one should be a little bit more critical on how one approaches things and analyzes it. And as I said, perhaps reflect a little bit about maybe we, we're still doing that because we're still human beings. So we still have our biases yeah. today, even though we like to think that we don't. There was one other thing that you said as you were, you were talking about hieroglyphs um, at, previously being regarded as a primitive form that would eventually mm-hmm. uh, yeah. uh, evolve. And that, that also struck me, again, I'm not a linguist, uh, nor do I pretend to be, but this idea also struck me as being associated with a cultural bias. So immediately when I hear this, I think of pictographic forms of expressing oneself and different languages that use pictographic forms the implication is that they are somehow inherently inferior or that they are underdeveloped or that yeah. they are uh, primitive or that they are, you know, whatever, pick, pick your pejorative word of, of, of choice. And thus the implication is, well, you know, they don't think like we do. They're not smart enough. They're not clever enough. Maybe in a few hundred years or thousand years, they'll eventually become like us. And I think there are all sorts of reasons to recognize that that's not necessarily correct. Mm-hmm. And if one is a little bit more traveled and even looking at a different societies, I mean, again, I don't know much about this, but I don't know exactly how Chinese characters work or, or Japanese characters work. And I'm in no position to say whether they're, they're pictographic, they're probably not, I, I, and you can tell me, but they're certainly different in their structure and their form. And the fact that they're different doesn't, of course, in any way mean that, that they are representative of an inferior way of thinking or acting or, or being human. I think it was quite useful, actually, because it makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense. In fact, uh, with the first Evans' book on pictographs, it talks about the successive stages in human evolution. And again, it talks about this in ref- with reference to writing and scripts. Yeah. So I think, yeah, it makes definitely sense where you was, what we were saying, that there was this bias. Uh, maybe there is still a bit of this bias around that the so-called uh, more pictographic writing, in a way, is more primitive if compared to linear forms of writing, which is not necessarily true. But uh, yeah, there was this idea going around. So at the very beginning, and, and something that seems to be a crux to your research agenda, you make a distinction between scripts and writing systems. Mm-hmm. And perhaps I'm just quirky, but 
I always get a great deal of intellectual satisfaction when somebody can demonstrate that something that has always seemed intuitively obvious to me is is just wrong. So the, my under, here's my understanding of what you're saying and why you're saying it, and and then you tell me if that's sure. if that's right or, or or if that's wrong. So I think the idea is that people automatically make an equivalence between a script and a language. And the notion is that if you're using a different script, you're saying a different language. And even to the extent of uh, yes. to what extent you can decipher something because you can decipher it and it will give you a, a unique language. And what you say is you say, well, that's there's not a one to one map. And in fact, you talk about two different types of writing systems. You talk about in the first case, what you mean by writing system is a general generic abstract way of capturing a language in terms of the mm-hmm. its logographic notion in terms of whether you use pictograms or whatever you happen to do in terms of its syllables and the structures and all the rest of that. And then there is something that's reflective of a specific language. And you, you make a, a, a distinction, a strong distinction between those two. And I think the point is that if you say, well, if you look at linear A and, and, and linear B as different scripts, and you associate them with that second context, then you're saying that they necessarily imply different languages because they're different scripts. That's what it means to be a different script. And then you make the point and say, well, actually, you can use the same script for different languages. Yeah. And you make and this is where the <laughs> my epiphany of, oh my gosh, that's incredibly obvious. Why didn't I think of that? Which is you talk about the Roman alphabet and yeah. you say, you know, you can use the Roman alphabet for Spanish or you can use it for English. So there's a very basic false equivalence that a lot of people are invoking. Is that mm-hmm. a fair way? To yeah, it's perfect. It's tuition? perfect. Perfect. Exactly. Yeah. And to the point that, that these kind of equations were also made uh, um, with civilization in, when we talk about linear A and linear B, especially after the decipherment of linear B. Say linear B is different from linear A from a structural perspective back in those days. So they are two different systems, which means that uh, they note two different languages and therefore they belong to the different civilization. So it was really at the time or just after the decipherment that the break really happened between the Mycenaeans, so-called the Minoans. Because back in Evans's days, he thought that actually the Mino- I mean the linear writing tradition was one single whole. And linear B in his view, was first taken as a calligraphic variant of the linear script uh, developed at the site of Knossos. And slightly later, when, it was, when uh, he worked more extensively on the writing and he realized that actually there were some differences, then he said that Linear B was developed out of, I mean, it was uh, basically the uh, result of a dynastic uh, revolution. Yeah. But still, the Cretan factor and the Minoan character remained unchanged in his views. So with the decipherment, basically, that pointed out uh, that Linear B was writing a different language and was mostly employed in the mainland, then you really, really here we have got the break. So different scripts means different languages means different civilization. But again, what I was trying to do to, to, point, to pinpoint uh, and to clarify in, the, in my book is that, yeah, we need to be super critical when we talk about the writing system, scripts, and civilizations in a way. And especially when we talk about uh, the graphic level, the transmission of the sign shapes, and the example of the Roman alphabet fits uh, in well, and uh, the transmission of uh, like a writing system overall, basically. Yeah. My understanding of, of one possible way to interpret this is to say, if you have the same orientation of writing a language, again, let's use the Roman alphabet. 
mm-hmm. and say, imagine a situation where you you do have an eventual change in, say, the language of the administration of your of your society. And so for a while, you have Spanish-speaking people who are in the, leading the administration. And then after three or 400 years, by whatever sociological events that we can't perhaps determine, there are Finnish people yeah. who, are, uh, who, who, who are doing it. Well, it's not correct to say, well, we, we can see that there should be a, a Finnish script language and a Spanish script language. You're still using that basic script. It's changing a little bit yeah. because people are actually speaking different languages. But it's, I, th- I think a central aspect of your thesis is something like that, that if you were to think a little bit more continuously and you were to think a little bit more broadly, and you were to disassociate this idea that a, a different language has to have, by necessity, a completely different script, which is uniquely associated with it, then you open yourself up to a world of, uh, of a different level of interpretation. Is that a fair... Yeah, yeah, I think it's perfect. Uh, once again, I think you've uh, got a very good grasp of what I've been written in the book, and I'm very happy that uh, it can speak to a general audience. So yeah, it's perfect. And I think, again, we need to be very mindful of the context of use of Linear B, for instance. As you said, it was a restricted context of use for the administration of palatial centers. So there was not even the incentive, in a way, to create, to have a wholesale uh, change in script just for the administration and uh, and for a system in a way the administrative system that was carried on from the previous period so again there was no drastic change or at least uh, as i see it uh, the evidence would not both the archaeological and the written evidence would not support a drastic change from the so-called minoan time down to the mycenaean time it was more of a fluid process basically of uh, of a transition basically. Um, and again, the uh, close context of the administrative usage of the script, again, uh, is, a, uh, is very important to remember in this kind of historical reconstructions. Yeah. And so if you want to parse things out further, if you want to make progress, you should look very carefully structurally and morphologically at the difference between linear A and linear B, which is an essential aspect of your approach, as I understand it. And you make a distinction between that you use all these words, many of which are somewhat opaque to me, but you basically make a difference. You, you make a distinction between structure and, and form. Mm-hmm. When you talk about structure, what I have in mind is something like the rules of grammar. And when you talk about paleographic evidence, I'm looking at the way things are shaped and to what extent the signs are, are written similarly in one location as opposed to another location and are consistent throughout and so forth. Is that, mm-hmm. is that a fair way to look at it or, or, or what am I missing there? Because this, this word paleography seems to mean like 55 different things depending on the context. So I'm not sure I completely understand what we're talking about. Okay, yeah, yeah. I think, I think yeah, I think most of it is correct. I just try and expand on some of these, uh, of these topics and issues. Yeah. So first I would say that, yeah, a grammar, I would say, yes, grammar is a good example for uh, structures, basically to find the structures. The, po- the problem is that in our case, we can really use grammar as a tool for investigating the script relationships because we don't really know the minor language. So we could use grammar for linear B within, so intersystemic analysis. We can do the intrasystemic within linear B, but not the intersystemic between the two of them. So grammar has got to be excluded. So what I mean by structure in my book is basically the way in which uh, the different signs are arranged and how they work. So the functions performed by signs. 
And this is because linea A and linea B, they are both considered and classified as logosyllabic writing system or scripts, because again, in the scholarship, there is a bit of a, uh, an overlap in terminology between these two terms. So logosyllabaries mean that the time repertory of a given script is uh, characterized by a number of signs that behave like syllables, and these are called syllabograms, so like pa, a, do, these are syllables. And then a number of signs behave like uh, uh, logograms or ideograms. So these are picture signs, again, I use this terminology, that usually depicts objects or real-life, uh, uh, real-world reference, and uh, these are used as uh, commodities. So they, they are meant to be spelt out uh, entirely as words. One such example is, for instance, in Linea B, the logogram for the tripod. So tripod, the depiction of a tripod, it stands for tripod, and it was meant to be read as tripod because the sequence tripode, which means tripods, is also tested on Linea B. So pictographs or logograms or ideograms are basically images that need to be read by the speaker without a phonetic aid while the syllables are individual units, phonetic units, that are used to spell out words and to be read individually. So both linear A and linear B have got both signs that uh, perform both functions. The difference being that while in linear B there is a clear uh, classification between and distinction between signs that work like syllables and signs that work like logograms, in linear A, this distinction is a bit more fussy, and sometimes uh, one sign can have both behaviors. So that is a trait that goes back to the structure of a writing system and not necessarily a script, because it goes beyond the graphical level and it entails uh, the uh, structural characteristic and way in which the signs were conceived. Yeah. So it's a matter of function. So this is what I mean by basically the function versus form divide. So the function has got to do with the system in a way, the, um, the form has got to do with the script. Yeah. So structure looks at the functions of signs, for instance, and the way in which the different signs are combined together to have meaningful combinations to either spell out words or to be read logographically or ideographically. On the other side, paleography looks at the shapes of uh, the signs to identify which variants uh, basically are variants of one given sign and which signs actually are isolated. I mean, it's a bit difficult to explain like this, but just to get an example, by using the Roman alphabet, actually, we can write one letter in different ways. Like the letter A, it can be in capitals, it can be in minuscule, in cursive, but still the different shapes of the letter A that are actually distinctive and different from each other still are recognized as the same grapheme in our mind, right? So we actually we need to do the same for the ancient scripts. So and one of our goals is basically to try and identify these different sign variants that can go under the same the umbrella of the same grapheme back in in that in the, the ancient scripts. Yeah. So in the Roman alphabet for us is easy. I mean we can understand the phenomenology of A's very easily, but uh, we don't have the same uh, skills for an ancient script that we are not uh, familiar with, so that's slightly more tricky. I just had a note on the term, uh, on the usage of the term paleography, so this basically is not the correct term to be used in our case, but then 
we use it because in the scholarship is pretty much widespread uh, to mean that basically you look and you study uh, sign shapes. But usually the term paleography applies to manuscripts, not necessarily to uh, clay objects like the ones that uh, we work on. Sometimes you can find the word epigraphy instead of paleography, the distinction being that epigraphy is a discipline that studies inscriptions on uh, uh, hard supports. Monuments. Yeah, so like stone uh, on like hard supports, while paleography studies inscriptions on soft supports like parchment or papyrus. But what is a clay tablet then? <laughs> is it soft or is it, uh, or is it uh, hard material? So it's something in between. So usually in our field, when we talk about, we, we talk about, about both paleography and epigraphy. But when we talk about uh, paleography, we just make a reference to sign forms, just shapes, graphic shapes. Right. While when we talk about epigraphy, we take into account the inscription in itself which is also like uh, the layout of the inscription, the uh, physical characteristic of the support and uh, all a number of other factors that may have played a role in, the, in producing the inscription itself, for instance, not necessarily only the graphic characters. So I hope I explained myself. Uh, <laughs> you did a great job. I should have talked to you before I read your book. Um, no worries. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> One other point, it seems to me that in terms of your analogy to uh, the Roman alphabet and writing in italics or uppercase, and it still has the same semantic content associated with it. Presumably, there's also this idea that different people in different locations have different styles of writing, different scribes, as it were. I'm not sure what the word would be for people who were writing on clay tablets, but... Uh, yeah, it's still, it's still a scribe. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, now... We are trying to move away from the usage of scribe and just say write, tablet writers or just writers because also scribe is quite heavily connotated. You always think about uh, like Egyptian scribes in a way or medieval <laughs> scribes, but it's still the, the best the best bet and the best game in town. For the moment, we, we still call them scribes. <laughs> right. But different scribes presumably have their own their own orientation, their own their own style. I mean, there's all this work that was done on ancient pottery where people are looking at the hands of, of famous artists and so forth. So you would presumably have something analogous going on in this line of work. And that also imposes a, a, an element of variability to it, but a variability that can be studied and analyzed and reflected upon and, and to some extent presumably delineates the acceptable amount of variation. I mean, if people are able to have a certain style, but it still looks like an A, or it still carries that semantic content, then that gives you a sense of the elasticity of, mm -hmm. of, uh, of how much you can vary, presumably, within that structure. Exactly. The thing is that it's still not, that extent uh, is not super clear, <laughs> especially in linear A. Uh, there are a number of uh, graphs that we cannot clearly associate to either a sign or a sign variant. And graph, by graph, we mean any kind of graphic unit. Yeah. Um, so it's like, again, going back to the Roman example, it's like something that looks like an A, but we are not super sure whether it is an A or an O. Is that a variant of an A? Is that an O or is it another new sign? And these are the questions that we ask ourselves when we look at some of the linear A signs still. That makes things fun. <laughs> In a way, yes. <laughs> Spice up <laughs> your life. Yeah. So I, I want to look at some 
sociological implications of some of your ideas. Mm -hmm. The big one for me is you mentioned earlier this lacuna in the historical record, this period of time between 1450 and 1400 or so BC, when we don't have any extant writings uh, in, in either, yeah, as I yeah, understand exactly. it. And, and from that point onwards, in an administrative capacity, Linear B seemed to have supplanted Linear A mm. from 1400 onwards. And a lot of people concluded from this, especially after Ventris showed that Linear B was actually Greek, that this is evidence for the notion of these Mycenaeans conquering Crete and a very violent upheaval therefore uh, happened. And from then on, because they imposed their language and their culture and everything else, then everybody was speaking that language. And and that, that was the thesis. And my sense is that some implications, direct implications of your approach are that, well, hang on, that's actually not necessarily the case. There are all sorts of other ways of looking at it that are directly implied by your particular approach. So my first question is, is that a fair summary of things? And my second question is, could you give us a little more details about why what you're saying actually does imply that that may not be the best way to look at things. Yeah, I think this because, as you said in the past, the decipherment basically of Linear B as Greek brought about the idea of a conquest of Crete, a takeover of Crete from mainlanders, and some kind of, yeah, a revolution or dynastic takeover. Because again, there is the idea of associating language with cultural differences. So different language, different cultures. So if... Uh, the administration started to use Linear B, which is Greek, it means that, uh, in a way, the other civilization, the mindland civilization, had to have had uh, the edge of uh, the Minoans and have taken over the island. But that's not super, I mean, it that doesn't need to be so. And what I showed in my book with my research is that by looking more um, precisely at the way in which the, uh, the linear system and the linear writing tradition is likely to have been transmitted from Linear A to Linear B, I mean, this shows that there was a, um, a lot of continuity in both, uh, uh, especially in, in, the, in the script, um, in the, the sign forms, but also uh, from the perspective of the system. So Linear B seems to have uh, um, done some kind of tidy up of the structural characteristics that we see in Linear A. So for instance, there was a clear subdivision of signs based on their own functions. So in Linear B, you say, okay, this is clearly a syllabogram, this other sign is clearly a logogram. There is a minimal amount of overlap. While in Linear B, we do have a greater amount of overlap. However, both categories were inherited in a way from Linear A and were continued. Also, on top of this, also the way in which Linear A combines simple signs together in order to make composite or complex signs that most of the time are used as logograms or commodities is also a practice that got inherited in Linear B and was continued into Linear B. So it is true that in Linear B, the logographic repertory had some kind of, it was completely changed. So we don't find many common signs for commodities. However, the way in which basically you create composite signs out of simple signs was continued mm. and not basically it was not an innovation. And this is in terms of structure, for instance. In terms of paleography, we can see that a good many signs and also a good many sign variants were continued directly from linear A down to linear B. 
So in the past, there was the idea that uh, linear B picked one of the variants of a given linear A sign and then created the further variants within linear B. Again, going back to the Roman alphabet example, it could be like, let's take the uppercase A as my master sign, and then I create in my own script more variants of A, but the variants that I want to basically out of the blue. And this was the model before basically my examination, the idea that linear B was in a way selective in the creation of its uh, graphic repertory. What I did is uh, basically I mapped the paleographic variation in linear A. So I basically I analyzed all and every attestation of every single sign attested on administrative documents from linear A. And I did the same for the earliest linear B deposit at Knossos, which is uh, uh, called the room of the chariot tablets. And then I made paleographical charts and I compared them. And what I was able to show is that uh, the master sign model is not quite the theory that applies to the transmission process. Rather, what happened is that the same graphic variants that we see in linear A for one given sign were transmitted more fluidly onto linear B. So linear B was less selective than we thought it was. And this is another argument in favor of continuity. So basically, we've got continuity in terms of structure of the writing system. We've got continuity in terms of uh, um, paleographical features. And then we've got continuity in terms of context, context of use of the writing practice as a technology, which was basically used for the administration of palatial, uh, palatial centers. And even more so in linear B, because in linear B, Basically, that was the only use of writing. So basically, this cumulative evidence, uh, in a way, pointed me towards uh, this uh, slightly more nuanced social-historical interpretation of Bronze Age Greece. So maybe this is a simplistic comment, but, uh, but uh, as you're talking, I think to myself, at some level, isn't this all a level of common sense? Uh, and here's, here's what I mean by this. Mm -hmm. so, so you have a situation when the language of record was language... Uh, well, I was going to say language A, but I don't, I don't want to say that yes. because that's confusing. So one language, and then eventually you have another language that you are recording. And then there's a, a variation in, uh, in terms of the script. Mm -hmm. And there are two ways of then looking at that. One way of looking at that is saying, oh, well, clearly what they did is they invented a, a script or an aspect of a script, which was particularly well suited to the second language that, that came along. And the other way to look at it is saying, well, they did what, what humans always do, which is they took what they've always been used to, what, they're, what, they, what they did all along, because it's, it's hard, especially on a societal level, to invent, Something, to invent yeah. things in, in real time. And you said, well, let's use what we have and we'll just try to use it as best we can and adapt it to the, the, the new language that we have. I mean, that, that's, and that, that seems to be the perspective that you are adopting as opposed to this notion of, well, we're going to start from scratch or we're going to start sort of from scratch on a societal wide level. We're going to say now we're going to use a, a way of formulating this language, which is particularly conducive to the very structure of that language. That seems like a, a not a very reasonable when you put it like that. It just doesn't seem like that's the way human beings act as a general rule. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, there is reason to believe that actually the system was not changed too much also because if we look at the structure of, uh, I mean, the syllabic system and a linear B, we see that actually the syllabary does have pitfalls. I mean, it's not super, it's not very suitable for writing Greek phonetically and phonologically. So 
I may I mentioned I did I made the example of a Toroquo that basically must have been pronounced something like Anthropos because of course it's a is a Greek dialect. So still, I mean, if you read the the term in writing, is pretty obscure. So it does require a bit of knowledge to basically bridge the gap from what is written on the the, the tablet surface, for instance, and what was supposed to be read and understood. So I would say that, yeah, if the Mycenaeans ever had to uh, master the art of writing, of course, it was a technology, it was a new tool, and it did require the skills to be mastered anyway. So creating a new, uh, a completely new writing system, I would say, would have required even more, um, uh, even more effort for very little, uh, very little outcome in a way, because they just needed to carry out to do administration, at least for what we know. And there was a perfectly suitable system uh, at their own hands that was the Minoan system. And the economy did change over the centuries, but still uh, it was deeply ingrained in the previous, uh, in the previous uh, historical context. Um, so I think, yeah, it just makes sense in a way. It's the most economical solution to think it's this way without saying, uh, yeah, without saying that there are not, I mean, we, we can definitely entertain other possibilities, but I think in my view, this actually makes uh, quite a lot of sense. I may also want to add that I'm saying that a syllabary is not particularly suited for writing Greek, uh, which is uh, an inflective language, but also we need to be reminded of the fact and mindful of the fact that the alphabet still was not in circulation and had not been invented. So the syllabary was still the, 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 the only game in town at the moment. There was the abjad, so uh, like, um, like Egyptians, that is written basically where you write consonants. But that's a Semitic language. So, I mean, it writes a Semitic language while uh, Greek is Indo-European. And it's not, I mean, you can really avoid writing vowels in a way in order to understand Greek. So, yeah, in a way, it was the the, the only game in town, but also it was not too bad of an option. (laughs) So let me switch gears and, and ask another question, which I can imagine somebody listening to this might have. Okay, there are these signs and clay tablets Nobody really knows what they are. Then in the 1950s, these guys in England figure it out that actually it's a form of Greek. Maybe somebody else will come along and say these other things, this linear A is also a form of Greek. I'm sure there might be some people thinking that. I thought that a while ago. I thought, well, maybe they just haven't figured it out. And five years from now, somebody will be able to figure that out. It seems now that that's just hugely unlikely. So so the, the follow-up would be, well, why are you guys talking about necessarily one language being then supplanted as the official palatial language by, by another language? Maybe it was really the same language, or maybe that language particularly evolved, or maybe uh, it was one was an incipient form of the other, or what have you. And, and my sense is that because you have done so much very, very careful analysis of comparing and contrasting the two in terms of their form and in terms of the structure that it's, you know, you would never want to say impossible because you don't want to say impossible, but it's extremely unlikely that that would be the case because were that to be the case, then we certainly would have seen evidence of that now, given the amount of analysis. Is that a, is that a fair summary? About yeah, I think so. I think for now, I would say it's pretty unlikely that Lina A encodes any form of Greek. But again, we never say never. First, because there are, there are not many shared sequences between Lina A and Lina B, and the ones that are shared are personal names and place names. 
So they're not super telling in terms of syntax or morphological construction. And the other problem is that we don't really have uh, long inscriptions displaying enough amount of syntax for us to understand the linguistic typology. In linear B, we do have some uh, clauses, basically, so some sentences, but in linear A, we don't. We may have actually some examples of sentences, and these are the so-called libation of formulas. But as the name says, formulas are very repetitive. So we can identify maybe what could potentially be a verb, what could be the subject, and if something resembles an object. But it's still very tricky to try and find out uh, uh, the the typological uh, um, structure of the Minoan language, basically. The other thing is that when we look at Minoan, we see that the, there are a number, a good number of um, affixes, which are basically prefixes or suffixes. So it means basically syllables that accumulated at the beginning or placed at the beginning or at the end of a word. And these are repetitive, like uh, qua, qua, ru. Uh, di, de, ru. So these are personal names. You see there is a repetition of basically the first two syllables. And this seems to be a feature of uh, the Minoan language, which would point against it being uh, Indo-European, but closer potentially to Semitic languages or maybe a different typology that was only found on Crete, the, the, the Cretan family for now. So for now we say that Minoan is an isolated language, is not the only one in uh, the ancient world. We have got Sumerian taking as uh, uh, isolated, Etruscan is isolated, but also Basque is isolated. And this is to say that uh, it's isolated not necessarily because it's not connected to anything, it's just because we didn't get to understand, or we haven't gotten so far. We, didn't, we don't know how to basically uh, link these given languages to any other ones or any other linguistic families so far known. But for now, as I said, Minoan also shows some uh, some structures in a way that point to it not being Indo-European and therefore not being Greek. Yeah. A couple more points before I get on to your future work, if I may. I referenced this metal vessel that was found mm-hmm. in a grave. And then you clarified that, well, it's really not clear exactly because of the symbols, whether it's linear A or linear B, but because we could chronologically dated to 1600 BC or, or something like that, or 1700 BC. And there's no evidence whatsoever that linear B, yeah. linear B was around then, then we can be fairly confident that that's, that's not the case. But this was found in a grave in mainland Greece. Yeah. And when I read this, I thought, wow, that seems like it could certainly be argued as supporting your claim that this was something that was used to incorporate some linguistic content that people felt strongly about, and they felt so strongly about it that they they buried it with uh, the individual who was who was buried there. Now, I suppose it could be argued, well, maybe people uh, merchants from Crete were busy shipping vessels around, and they they made it over there, and then they exported it. But it seems it, so. I don't I don't pretend to know the details, but it seems like that could be a data point that actually supports this notion of continuity. Uh, do, you, do you agree with that? Or, or, yeah, or not? Uh, definitely. And even more so for the, for the fact that in these grave assemblages, and only, not only in these grave assemblages, but also in others, actually it's quite difficult sometimes to distinguish between clearly identifiable like mainland features and uh, Cretan features, both iconographically in terms of pottery shapes. We do find influences. 
The problem is that uh, in the scholarship, it has always been a bit challenging to entertain a different scenario from the traditional one that sees basically the mainland as different from uh, Crete and the minor civilization. So now there is a good number of scholars are taking a slightly more um, nuanced approach. And they are looking at uh, exchange, basically, of ideas, exchange of motives, exchange of, in a way, cultural traits in either direction and not necessarily only from Crete to the mainland first and then from the mainland to Crete uh, later on. So now there is this uh, slightly different approach that is taking place and uh, and this, of course, in, involves the matter of identity. So again, maybe just because of our modern time where we are also discussing what identity means. So what does it mean to be, I don't know, Europeans, for instance, or what does it mean to be academics? What does it mean to be a woman in my case? And so people are also more like uh, prone to looking at the past and applying the same, like, these views to the past. So what does it mean to be a Mycenaean, in a way? Or what does it mean to be a Minoan? Do we still have got to uh, rely on these uh, traditional classifications? And so, yeah, um, if we look at the archaeological record, and again, not only this grave assemblage, but also another grave assemblage that has been recently found in 2018 or 15, I don't remember precisely, at Pylos, the so-called warrior tomb. In this warrior tomb, quite excitingly, actually, there are very many objects of the material culture that look like uh, Cretan, in a way, with Cretan influences or potential Cretan imports. And this has opened up to the question even more, because they say, oh, look, whoever was potentially the king or a very important person at Pylos had some kind of... was Nestor. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Had some kind of Cretan connections. Was this person, as this person got to be identified as a Cretan, or has it got to be identified as a Mycenaean? Or maybe we, we need to get let go of these kind of strict classifications. And basically, they were just Aegeans in a way, in a network of connections that uh, goes beyond bidirectionality. So they were exchanging traits, cultural elements and uh, material culture elements but without necessarily implying influence of one culture in a way over the other and i think that the reconstruction that i gave in my book actually fits in neatly with these new recent discoveries that are pointing again towards uh, a more fluid network of connections and a fluid concept of identity in a way this notion of Ascribing our notions of identity politics on people who lived 3,000 years ago or what have you, 4,000, anyway, whatever, a long time ago. Uh, <laughs> it's past beyond counting, yeah. Right. <laughs> that makes me think of, of, of a related question that I had and, and ties into this notion of your analysis of Evans again. It's not so much that our biases that we are unthinkingly bringing to bear will lead us astray. They may lead us astray. They may not lead us astray, but they are biases. And, and, and if we want to move forwards reasonably objectively, we have to, at the very least, be aware that these yeah. are biases that we have. And that made me think about this notion of the, the previous paradigm of the Greek invaders to account for this, this time period and the sudden growth, as it were, of Linear B. Because I thought, well, this happened, as I understand it, I mean, this happened not too long after Ventress and Chadwick's discovery. So it became the paradigm of the 50s and 60s. And I think, well, maybe that's not a coincidence that we were living through the Cold War. We were going through a period of 
colonialism, post-colonialism, imperialism, and so forth. So it was very much in people's minds, this idea of an invading force that would come and change things over here and set the agenda and, uh, you know, move tanks into Prague or, or what have mm. you. I wonder if that may not have, I'm not saying it's the only factor by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, one could imagine how people could make that argument, yeah. but I think it, it, it maybe is worth pointing out that again, this may be an indication of how contemporary biases impinge our views uh, and analysis of what happened in the past. Oh yeah, I think it's a very sensible way of uh, looking at it and thinking. And uh, I'm not aware of anybody having pointed this out, but I think it's a very good argument and I would really subscribe to it. I mean, I think, yeah, it's a time of basically colonialism and uh, such interpretations were pretty powerful in a way. I can also add that there is another piece of evidence that disproves any kind of potential takeover of Crete. And this is the fact that no evidence of battlefields has been found on Crete, for instance. So it's not like for the Roman period where we have found evidence of the great battles of the past, for instance. So we can say, okay, here something happened. There was a military, some kind of military display here. On Crete, apparently there is none. There is not like that. Or well, at least uh, it hasn't been found yet, but especially around Knossos. I mean, if we suppose and you assume that there was a Cretan takeover, how did these people <laughs> ever got uh, into Crete and what happened? We don't have that kind of evidence, not that kind of dynastic change or revolution that Evans talks about. Yeah. So it sounds very much like uh, this interpretation was also influenced by the contemporary historical situation of the time in which the interpretation basically was put forward. That's a pretty big non-data point, the lack of any, yeah. any grace. <laughs> Definitely. Well, <laughs> some scholars also argued in the past that there might be some evidence that suggests uh, that is basically goes in favor of a potential military takeover. And this is basically the chariot tablets. <laughs> chariot tablets that I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation and I studied at, uh, during my uh, master. So these are a number of records written in linear B. They're very short uh, and again, very repetitive. And they list uh, usually, there is a, a, a man name at the beginning, at the start of the record. And then there are three logograms, one for a corslet, one for a chariot, and one for horse. It's basically the equipment that uh, was being allocated to individuals for a military display. But actually, it's not necessary. I mean, this doesn't have to be thought as some kind of... Uh, military force, an army, it might just have been used for other reasons, like processional reasons. It could have been a parade, yeah, absolutely. Exactly. And we do have evidence of this kind of processional chariots used for cultic purposes, for instance, in religious contexts. We do have this evidence in iconographical sources, both in mainland Greece and in Crete. And also, Crete is very rocky and very hilly, so the chariot is not the best means of transportation if you really want to display an arm, you know. They would rather sail. And uh, from the historical sources later on in mythology, Greek mythology, we know that uh, Crete was supposed to have a very, a very powerful fleet. Minos, the king of, uh, of Gnosos in the myth, was basically the Talasocrat, so the leader of, uh, of the fleet. So I think that if we look at the evidence slightly more critically, we can see the pitfalls of this traditional idea of Crete takeover. Just that we need to get cumulative evidence once again. There is not one single piece of evidence that will destroy all the other ones. One thing that you speculate 
I think it's an interesting idea, again, fighting back or pushing back against this idea of uh, hegemonic takeover and indoctrinating the people and so forth. And this ties into your comment about trade and relationships in the greater Aegean is the possibility that maybe these people were actually bilingual. And you're not saying I have evidence to support this Mm -hmm. or anything like that, but as a speculation, as an idea, it doesn't strike me as being the slightest bit outlandish. And it does give a different flavor or or context or color to the potentialities of the situation. I think it makes sense. So once again, I think you should definitely write a book over (laughs) that. They might, I mean... Why not? I think there there is reason to believe that they might have been bilingual, not only because of this network of associations that we can see and connections that we can see and reconstruct from the archaeological record based on the material culture, but also because, for instance, uh, we don't have any bilingual text. So this might actually mean, if it is is not just by chance, that uh, at least uh, those who wrote in both Lina A and Lina B were able to understand their mutual languages in a way, or whatever was written in Lina A could have been understood by whomever was writing in Lina B and vice versa. Yeah. So maybe the lack of a bilingual that is most of the time claimed as to be a basically a tough luck on our side, and I can just subscribe to it again I would say I'd love to have a bilingual because that could actually help us crack in A but on the other side the lack thereof can actually point to the existence of potential bilingualism in the ancient Mediterranean especially uh, Aegean context so I wouldn't really doubt as an option well it's a captivating idea and just that idea makes you think a little bit differently from these standard paradigms And there's also this interesting notion of the absence of evidence or explicit evidence in one direction can actually be an indicator. As you were talking, um, it it makes you think about the relationship between languages in the the medieval world and in the Renaissance Mm -hmm. with respect to Latin. I mean, everybody who was at a certain cultural level, they, 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 they knew Latin, they were bilingual in that particular orientation. So when you're talking about, well, why didn't this translation happen into the vernacular as well? Because the people who were reading, they all knew Latin anyway, Mm -hmm. so they didn't. Anyway, thank you very much for your time. I've kept My pleasure. No worries. It was a pleasure. Actually, may I just add a point, just a follow-up about bilingualism? Yeah, yeah, please. I think there is even more to that. I think, uh, I mean, of course, bilingualism would be a very good option to bear in mind for prospective research. But we may want to also reach out even more and to think that maybe there was a context of multilingualism, not necessarily only bilingualism. If he, because if we look at the script context, we also have got the Cypro-Minoan, for instance, that uh, was in use from 1600 uh, until basically 11th century. Of course, it was used mostly on the island of Cyprus, but still, uh, for some time, it was in concomitant use uh, with Lina A, although uh, Lina A was basically a Cretan system, while Cypro-Minoan is a Cypriot system. But given that Lina A is also found in different in the Aegean islands, although not Cyprus. We may also want to think of the Aegean as a multilingual context. Of course, we don't have a way of proving it, but uh, a broader spectrum in a way. Um, There was an aspect of databases and technology and the internet uh, there were some articles about you that I, that I was going to read and I never did because I was just reading your book and I didn't see anything about the internet in your book. So, uh, yeah, so exactly. I, don't, I don't really know anything about that. But maybe you can talk about 
that because I don't know anything. I don't know what we're talking about there. Mm-hmm. But there, there, my understanding is there, there, there are some there are some aspects of how one uses contemporary technology to be able to move forwards with uh, your current and future research. And perhaps you can explain that to me because I don't I don't know anything about that. Yeah, absolutely. So basically, what uh, what you might have uh, stumbled upon on the internet uh, is uh, or are uh, articles about uh, the database of linear inscriptions that have been developed uh, since 2020 in collaboration with a computer scientist from uh, from France. Actually, is Simon Castellan from Ingria in Rennes. So this uh, database is basically something I had in my mind since the very start of my PhD, because what I did, uh, the data set basically of my PhD that is now my book, uh, was collected painstakingly by hand. So I told you that I made some paleographical charts and I mapped paleographical variation across the two scripts. So that was done by hand. So basically what I did is that I took scans of the, uh, the documents and then I cropped each individual sign attested in every inscription and I added it to big paleographical charts. So the comparative work was made by hand, maybe, and it took a massive amount of time. It was very painstaking. Sure. So I always told myself, oh my gosh, I should have done it digitally. I should have done it digitally. But I didn't have the skills in a way to do it digitally, or no, n- n- neither did I have the time in a way. I mean, at the end, in insight, I would say, yeah. It would have saved me time. But back at the beginning of my PhD, when you know that you've got to write your PhD in three years, you can rely on other people's help or just uh, getting new skills. And I am yeah. not computer scientist. So I was like, okay, let's get hands down and do it by myself as I know I can do it. So when I managed to get my um, postdoc position, I'm very grateful for this, uh, I decided to get it done and I decided to start this new project. So now basically most of the, um, the linear inscriptions can be searched comparatively in this database and every single user can customize their own research and their own data set by setting a number of parameters. So for instance, again, if I want to look at all the signs for A in linear A, then I can do so. And I can see all the different variants of the sign across uh, different sites. But, th- but then I can also do more. For instance, uh, I want to see uh, all the ways in which the sign, again, X or A, combines with the sign Y. And there is a way in the database to look for that. Wow, wow, wow. So th- there are a number of uh, searches that can be done. Another example is to look uh, at uh, epigraphical features that we discussed earlier. So one epigraphical feature that can be studied is uh, the presence of erasures. Erasures are basically cancellations um, of signs by the scribe then that decided to write something on top. Sometimes the, uh, the previous, the earlier, the first layer and the first uh, sign that was written is still uh, readable. That's what's like a palimpsest. Yeah, exactly. That's the term. I was a bit worried about using it because I don't know if people know it yet. So palimpsest is a term that is mostly used for yeah manuscripts, but it also happened. Uh, it was used also in the past, and especially on clay documents. And most uh, honestly, most of the linear A documents and linear A tablets are palimpsest, which is something that is definitely worth looking into. As opposed to linear B ones uh, that are not 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 all of them are palimpsest, just a, a smaller number. So SIGLAR, which is the name of the database, which is uh, the science of linear A, a paleographical database, also allows you to look for uh, the erasures in all documents. And you will be, basically, you will see the tablet, uh, the drawing of the tablet with the erasure marked. And you can also see, look at it both contextually, but also overall. So all the tablets of linear A that shows erasures. 
Wow, wow. And that, of course, is a, something that only a digital approach allows you to do. So I'm pretty happy with uh, the outcome. The, 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 da- the database is not completed. Uh, it's still uh, on, on under ongoing development because it takes a lot of time. I make the drawings myself based on the uh, edited corpus of inscriptions in order to circumvent copyright issues no, no, no. and also to make uh, basically the drawing um, interactive. Otherwise, you couldn't do with, uh, with the scans. But now, uh, if uh, I mean, this is a database uh, open access to anybody can use it. I also decided to clearly identify the different signs in terms of function and in terms of potential reading, phonetic reading. And I also added, I mean, in collaboration, we added basically the feature of looking for words on the, on the tablet surface. So in the past, this knowledge was only restricted, I mean, in the recent past, this knowledge was only restricted to the academics working on Linear A and being able to read the tablets without uh, an additional transcription. Now any user can go onto the website, click on a document and be able at least to see the start and the end of a word and to read it phonetically with the same values that we've got uh, worked out for Linear B. Wow, wow. Again, it is an approximate reading, but it's better than, uh, than nothing. So this is basically what I've been working on uh, most recently, among other things. Uh, and uh, I also take it as some kind of a deductive outreach, in a way, and didactic tool, because anybody who wants to know a bit more about Linear A, they can do so. I was influenced by my past life, in a way. I had to study Linear B by myself without the aid of anybody. So in a way, this is my way of giving back. Somebody who wants to learn a bit of Linear A can do it by themselves. It's quite nice. Giving back, but but also uh, significantly enhancing future scholarship because you're giving so many opportunities, not only for younger people who would be interested or, or amateurs. And of course, there is a, a glorious tradition of amateur research actually uh, providing significant dividends in this field generally, mm-hmm. but also for scholars such as yourself. I mean, this seems like it's it would be an invaluable resource for people who are experts in the field to be able to conduct their research. So I'm imagining... I think those guys at Cambridge should just go right ahead and give you a faculty position, quite frankly. I'm, uh, I well, I'm afraid I will be unemployed <laughs> instead. After this year, I have no job prospects. <laughs> okay, so, well, that'll change. Don't worry yeah, about hopefully. that. Hopefully. Um, let me ask you about something that you're probably not expecting me to ask. Mm-hmm. It's a, diff- a different sort of topic. So as I'm going, flipping through this book, you're mentioning this paper and that paper, and you're footnoting this and that, and every so often I look these things up. And it comes to my attention that a significant number of people in this field of research have been women. In a previous life, I was a physicist, and there was always this issue of gender underrepresentation and and so forth. And there are people who make all sorts of arguments about, well, you know, if you're doing something that requires a tremendous amount of dedication as mathematical or code breaking or something like that, then there's a statistical correlation with men. And I think this field requires a tremendous amount of analysis. It it strikes me as very, very similar to cryptography in in sort of uh, at some level. Yeah, in a way, yes, yeah, right. It requires obviously enormous dedication, a, a tremendous amount of analysis. And there seems to me, just again, I don't pretend to know, but just from the from looking at these references, I was very pleasantly surprised by how many women have made seminal contributions over the decades. First of all, am I right? Is this is this something which is appreciated and understood by people who are in the discipline? And 
can we somehow learn something mm-hmm. from this? I mean, it really struck me as quite interesting. Yeah, honestly, I mean, that's right. I think the gender balance in this, uh, in this niche field, in a way, is, uh, is quite good, is quite nice. And there are a number of professors that are women. I I have no idea why, to be honest. I don't. I don't know why the AGN scripts, uh, in general, has attracted many like women academics. But I think there is a yeah. The gender balance is quite uh, quite okay, especially compared to other disciplines. Uh, I don't think there are biases against women uh, in uh, in the field at the moment. I think that we are. I mean, it's a nice community. It's a I mean, not to say that there are not fights at the big conferences, that there is always uh, something to be worried about. It wouldn't be an academic community. <laughs> Otherwise, otherwise. <laughs> exactly. So always display your char- your Mycenaean chariot when you go into conferences <laughs> or deploy your chariot. Uh, but yeah, I would say that uh, you're completely right. The number of women in our field uh, is also rising. I can say that uh, you have got a number of uh, very esteemed colleagues that are just at the beginning of their own uh, early careers and have got big grants or professorships and uh, and they are women, so yes. Well, uh, something maybe for the future generations to explore. <laughs> Reasons why our field attracted academic, female academics. But not just from now on. I mean, you look at this Alice Coburn yeah, and, yeah. and there were these papers by this Ilsa Scoop and all these people that, I mean, it, it, just seemed, it, it just seems very, very often. I say, wow, that's a really interesting development. Who did that? And then it turns out it's a, it's a woman somewhere. Yeah. So that's, yeah, yeah, definitely. that's, that's, uh, that's, that's good. Maybe, you know, it's so, just a joke, but it's like the call of the past. So you know that somebody, uh, some people claim that uh, the Cretan, the Minoans were a matriarchal society. <laughs> Well, there you go. <laughs> Unfounded, but uh, who never knows. No, well, it could explain why someone like Evans wasn't equipped to be able to completely guide us on the right path. But I don't want to be built, you know, <laughs> exactly. pushing him around. He did a lot of wonderful yep, things, exactly. as, as, as everybody knows. So again, you've been very, very gracious with your time. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Is there something that we haven't had a chance to talk about as much or something you'd like to emphasize? I think you have done a great, a great job, Howard, by like uh, rephrasing basically what I wrote in my book, asking very sensible questions, and I'm very happy with uh, how the interview went. And of course, if there are more questions, I would be have, uh, even more happy to uh, to go on uh, and uh, and answer them. Well, I might just want to ask if you want now write a book on <laughs> linear A and linear B linear <laughs> theories. I mean, you are well, very well informed, so one never knows, you know. <laughs> I would like you to keep doing your thing, and I would like you to get a very, very well-deserved faculty position uh, somewhere, and and keep changing the world, and uh, and then and then have coffee with no, me. Definitely, and tell me about it. definitely, <laughs> definitely. Well, you know, after COVID, when everything will be slightly more relaxed, uh, I think I will pay a visit to France, and uh, I would love to have a coffee and speak my own. Let's say so. <laughs> You're very, very welcome. Thank Esther, it's been, a, it's been a real privilege and a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very, very the much. The same. Thank you to you, Howard. Great to talk to you. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com, while those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.